the larger catechism of the Westminster Standards. And I realize most of you know what I mean by those words, but there are new and young Christians that may not. A catechism is a method of teaching or catechetical teaching. You ask questions, you give answers. That's a catechism. And the Westminster Standards were those documents drafted in the 1600s by a group of godly men in London, England, and they produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. And as Pastor Martin would say from time to time, it's not the Westminster, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so there was a group of documents, and part of those documents was what was called the Larger Catechism. So in the Larger Catechism of the Westminster Standards, question number seven is this, what is God? And the answer in the Catechism is, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. A very good answer to that question. Now, this is an all-encompassing statement which reflects the Scripture's teachings concerning the being and attributes of God. And as good as this statement is, however, it still falls short of the realities of who God is as the subject of the attributes of God itself is a massive subject. And so we cannot comprehensively grasp and understand all of God's attributes in one or several adult Bible classes. And indeed, believers will spend eternity learning more and more about God. So let me now quote an author who has made the following comments regarding the study of God's attributes. He wrote these words, and this is a modern author, in speaking of God's justice and mercy, of his power and his wisdom, indeed of all his attributes, we do not for a moment think that we are able to define God in any limiting sense. If these paragraphs, which are written to explain the confession of faith, if they were pages, or if all the world were printed explanations, we could never hope to catalog the perfections of our triune God. What we want to do is to rejoice in God's character with as much depth as we are able, so that we may better reflect his image, give him much glory, and enjoy him forever. And there I end that quote. But now listen to the words of the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon regarding such a study of the attributes of God. Spurgeon wrote these words, There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast 
that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Still quoting Spurgeon, but while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands the mind. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ, the study of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. End quote. That was Charles Spurgeon. So this morning, we shall consider some of the Bible's teachings regarding one of the attributes or characteristics of God, specifically the sovereignty of God. And as we begin this study, let us remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17 and verse 3, where Jesus prayed, And this is life eternal, that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. You see, that was the Lord's prayer, that we would know God, the only true God, and know the Lord himself, whom God the Father sent into this world. It is your privilege as a Christian, it is your responsibility as a Christian to endeavor through the scriptures by the aid of the Holy Spirit to know the only true God, and studying God's attributes is one way to fulfill the very desire of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed in his prayer in John 17. So this is our task, this is our privilege, even this morning, to study, to begin to study one of the attributes of God, the sovereignty of God. And so I would like to begin then with a definition of the sovereignty of God. And I've gotten this definition from Arthur Pink in his book dealing with that very subject. He wrote, the sovereignty of God is an expression that refers to the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God, the fact that God is God. That was his definition of the sovereignty of God. So this morning, we will be turning to a number of passages in our Bibles. So please make sure you have your Bible, whether paper or electronic, at hand. And first of all, let us observe, and again, this is not exhaustive, but let us observe from the scriptures that God is sovereign over all. So again, turn to a number of passages. First of all, Psalm 115 and verse 2. God is sovereign over all, Psalm 115, verse 2. Why should the nations say, 
Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he pleased. And there we stop the reading. The unconverted, the ungodly, the atheist may scorn and mock the Christian and his belief in God and ask with disdain, where now is their God? And indeed, doesn't that happen? Haven't you experienced that with unconverted people? I have, where when they find out you're a Christian and you're speaking about the sovereignty of God or some other uh, reality of God and they speak with disdain, where's your God? He's not in control. Look at all the problems in the world. Well, you see, they do that with disdain. But the psalmist's reply to that question is simple. God is seated upon his sovereign throne in the heavens, and he does whatsoever pleases him throughout the heavens, the earth, and among all of the creatures of this world. The contempt of unbelieving sinners does not alter this truth and reality. God is not, of course, the author of sin, but God is in control of all things. He's even in control of the sinful men who do sinful things, though he himself is not the author of sin. He is not tainted by sin, but God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he pleased. Turn now to Psalm 135 and verse 5. Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that Jehovah is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever Jehovah pleased, that has he done in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. You see, God's will is infallibly accomplished throughout his creation. God pleases to do, and then God performs the deed. No region is too high, no abyss is too deep, no land is too distant, no sea is too wide for God to accomplish his sovereign will. Nothing, nothing inhibits God from fulfilling his sovereign purposes. Turn now to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. Daniel 4 and verse 34. Of course, we're breaking into the history here at this point, but I think you'll understand without problem this passage. Daniel 4, beginning with verse 34. <clears throat> And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can strike his hand or say unto him, What are you doing? And there we stop our reading. 
So you see from this passage, God does all that he does according to his will, not man's will. His sovereign rule is extended in heaven as well as in the earth. Nothing is left to so-called chance. None can inhibit or prevent God from accomplishing his will. Men may arrogantly and sinfully challenge God. Indeed, they do, such as when unconverted people say to you, the Christian, well, why does God permit all of this suffering in the world? If he's really God, if he's really ruling the world, as you say he is, why is there war? Why are there suffering people in Africa? Why is there poverty? You see, what are they doing? They're arrogantly challenging God's rule. So they, they do do that, but ultimately, none can effectively challenge God's will, purposes, and actions. No one can strike away God's hand, as it were, to prevent God from doing his holy will. God will perform all his holy and sovereign will, and no creature can thwart him prevent him from accomplishing his purposes. King Nebuchadnezzar came to his spiritual senses and saw this reality as he was humbled in the dust. But now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, as you all know, to Timothy. And in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 6, we read, I break into the writing here. Paul wrote that you, Timothy, referring to Timothy, that you keep the commandment without spot, without reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his own times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So in this passage, Paul was reminding the young pastor Timothy to be courageous, to fight the good fight of faith. If you look back in the earlier verses prior to verse 14, you will see that he's urging him fearful, timid Timothy, to be courageous, to fight the good fight of faith. And in order to strengthen Timothy in his resolve, what did Paul do? He reminded Timothy of the truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, namely that he is the only potentate. And the title potentate means that in the universe, the Lord alone possesses the independent right and absolute sovereignty over all things. The Lord is also called by Paul, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, clearly proclaiming that although earthly kings, earthly lords, and indeed earthly queens are called sovereigns, that's true in the United Kingdom, the sovereign, that title with reference to earthly kings, queens, lords, is clearly a misnomer. It's actually a wrong name. It's incorrect. 
Because the only king of kings, the only true king, the only true Lord, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul reminded Timothy that the powers of this world are subject to God's supreme dominion. The powers of this world depend actually upon God, though they may not know it. The powers of this world stand or fall at God's will. So, brethren, you need to think about these truths from the Bible regarding the sovereignty of God. You see, there's no need to be fretting. There's no need to be fretting about politics, about the President of the United States, about what the UN is doing or not doing, about what's happening in Niger and Africa, or what is happening in China, or what is happening in Saudi Arabia and the crown prince there, or what is happening in any place throughout the entire world. But coming back to America, there is no need to be fretting. When you stop, step back, pause and think biblically. God is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever he pleases. He is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed and only potentate that will calm your heart. But you have to think about these biblical truths and you have to bring them down to the present, to the here and now. And remind yourself, this is the truth. This is reality. But now, secondly, God is sovereign over creation. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. God is sovereign over creation. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We need to remember this basic biblical truth and reality. God created the heavens and the earth. God created man and woman. Man and woman did not evolve, whether in some short span of time or some many years of time. No, God is the creator. Before the creation of anything, God dwelt, if I may use that term dwelt, we speak with human words to describe things that are really beyond our understanding in so many ways, because we're speaking of God. But before the creation of anything, God dwelt, if I may use that term dwelt, in solitary majesty and sovereignty, in need of nothing and nobody, in need of nothing and nobody. God did not need to create man. God did not need man. God does not need man. God has not ever needed anything or anyone. He is not somehow missing something. 
God in his inscrutable wisdom. And see, when you speak of the attributes of God and you try to isolate one like the sovereignty of God, it's really difficult to do that isolating work because they are woven together the attributes of God because of who God is. So that's why I say God in his inscrutable wisdom chose to create and he was and is in sovereign control of all that he has created. And thus we read in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible also teaches that when God created, he sovereignly created differences. And this is very plain as one reads through Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created the animals, the birds, the fish, the trees, the fruitful trees, etc. He sovereignly created differences. To underscore that truth, turn now to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35. First Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what manner of body do they come? You foolish one, that which you yourself sow is not quickened except it die. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but a bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other kind. But God gives it a body even as it pleased him, and to each seed a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fishes. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. And there we stop our reading. Look at verse 38. God gives it a body even as it pleased him. You see, God is in sovereign control of everything and everyone. In creating, God sovereignly created everything with all of their complexities, simplicities, and differences exactly as it pleased God himself. It's very important to understand these truths, these realities concerning God and his sovereignty over creation. Turn now to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive the glory 
and the honor and the power. You might pause and ask the question, why? Why is the Lord our God worthy to receive the glory and honor and power? Here's the answer in verse 11. For you did create all things, and because of your will they are and were created. So creating all things means that God created also principalities and powers and rulers and angels, indeed everything and everyone. And as the creator to whom all things owe their existence, God alone is worthy of the glory, honor, and power, which are often sinfully usurped by finite creatures. And brethren, this is where it's important. We need to understand when, when I'll use an example, when Pastor Chansky preaches a message from God's word and you sit and you listen, I'm not trying to embarrass him. Maybe I am embarrassing him, but I don't mean to. <laughs> Yesterday during the memorial service, he preached a message at our sister Santali Karunia's uh, because of her death. And as I sat there, I said, this is so excellent. It was so wonderful. The truths that he proclaimed from Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. It was just marvelous truth. And he applied it to our departed sister's life here on earth and to us. It was wonderful. It would be right for me to go to Pastor Chansky, which I plan to do, and now I'm doing it publicly, <laughs> to say, thank you very much. That God really helped you. And thank you, because it wasn't a spirit that preached the message. It was Pastor Chansky who preached the message. So it's right for me to be thankful to that servant of God that he preached such a message. But I know Pastor Chansky's response as a Christian man, and it should be our response, not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name be glory and honor given. And you see, that's what we need to understand. For you did create all things, and because of your will they are and were created. We are not to usurp the honor due to God. We're to give glory and honor to God for the fact that he is sovereign over all and sovereign over creation. But now thirdly, God is sovereign over what we call providence. God is sovereign over providence. The London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 states the following regarding providence. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. So again, I pause there. You see, in those very words, speaking about providence... We should understand the sovereignty of God is woven into those very words. It is God who upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures 
from the greatest even to the least. And notice again the interweaving of the attributes of God. How is this done by God? By his most wise, the wisdom of God, and holy providence, the holiness of God, to the end for which, to the end for the which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And again, you see the reality of God's knowledge, his omniscience in this very statement, God's unchangeableness, his immutable counsel of his own will. This truth that God is sovereign over providence, that God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and all things, is clearly taught in the Bible. I quoted from the Confession of Faith, but it's taking the truth from the Bible. So turn to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew 10 and verse 28. And be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And there we stop our reading. Again, we see other aspects of God's attributes, even in these words of Matthew 10. But we're focusing on the fact that God is sovereign over providence. Verse 29 and verse 30. In the sobering words of verse 28, the Lord Jesus declared that the soul and the body are of great value in the sight of God, and that man is not to be feared, but God is to be feared. He then comforts his disciples, teaching them that God is in sovereign control of even those things that seem so insignificant such as sparrows. They were actually apparently sold for food by those who were very poor, who could not afford much. So they would buy sparrows and then they would cook them and eat them. Apparently, that's what my understanding is. But a sparrow is such a small, insignificant bird sold for a penny. And so the Lord is trying to instruct his disciples teaching them that God is in sovereign control, even over those things that seem insignificant, such as sparrows and the hairs of their head. The Lord speaks of God's general providence with respect to all of his creatures, such as sparrows. And he then, in this passage, speaks of God's special providence with respect to his disciples. The very hairs of your head are numbered. He was speaking to his disciples. So you see, apart from God's sovereign care and love, nothing can happen even to the hairs on the heads of the disciples. 
Now, you may think, oh, he was just speaking using picturesque language. He was maybe just speaking using some exaggeration. I think if you think either of those things, you're incorrect. He literally did mean that. Observe how this truth, that God is sovereign over providence with respect to the most minute details of a Christian's life. Observe how this truth is articulated in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number one. And if you're not familiar with it, you should be. It's an excellent question and answer. The Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the end of the answer to that question. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's a wonderful, wonderful statement. And indeed, is this not the truth that Paul articulated in Romans 8.28, which probably everyone in this auditorium could quote from memory? We know, you see, we know this. We are to know truth, not just in our heads, of course. It starts in the head, but by the work of God, the Spirit, it descends down into the heart and soul and affects the way we live. We know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. Why is it that all things work together for good? Because God is in absolute sovereign control of providence, indeed, of all things and everyone. John Calvin understood heartily believed and proclaimed this truth of God's sovereignty over providence, God's sovereignty over creation, when he wrote the following, and he did not mean it as poetic words, and he didn't mean it as uh, just sort of, it's, nice, it's nice, nice to say this, but I don't really think this is really true. No, he did believe this, and I believe it. Because the Bible, I think, supports this, not his exact words. But Calvin wrote, It is certain that not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command. 
I don't think he was using hyperbole. I don't think he was trying to just exaggerate. He really did believe that. I believe that. You should believe that. So in this last week, we had a, a number, at least in Butler, New Jersey, a number of really strong rainstorms with a lot of rain falling, a lot of raindrops. And Calvin is saying not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command. That's absolutely true because God is sovereign over providence, over all things. Turn to Acts 17 and verse 24. Acts 17 and verse 24. Paul was in Athens, Greece on this occasion, preaching the truth to Athenians. And in Acts 17, verse 24, we break in to his words, the God that made the world and all things therein, he being Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, Neither is he served by men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made of one every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed seasons and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek God if perchance they might feel after him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain even of your own poets have said. And there we stop our reading. Paul declared to the Athenians, who the passage tells us were very religious people. That doesn't mean, of course, that they were good religious people. They were very religious people. He declared to the Athenians that it was not an unknown God. They had an altar to an unknown God. It was not an unknown God or any of the various gods of the Greeks who created the world. Rather, it was the God whom Paul proclaimed who created the world and the first man, Adam. Although Paul did not name Adam in verse 26, that's who he is referring to, and that from that one man, every human being is descended. And furthermore, Paul declared, this God is in absolute sovereign control of history and the rise and fall of nations, as well as the boundaries between nations. You see that there in verse 26. So God is the one who is in control of what is going on in this world. Just think for a moment of what is happening in Yemen and the Saudi Arabian, the Arabian Peninsula, an ongoing civil war. Again, God is not the author of sin, but God is in control of all things. He is the one who is determining the bounds of nations. The same with Ukraine and Russia. God is in control. Again, men are responsible for their sins, their evil deeds. But God is in sovereign control of all things, including providence. We see that in Acts 17. 
turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. Breaking into the uh, sentence here, in Ephesians 1 verse 11, in whom, the whom of verse 11 refers back to Christ, who is mentioned in verse 10. So in whom also we were made a heritage, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. He works all things after the counsel of his will. The calling to faith in Christ of God's heritage, which consists of those elect Jews and Gentiles who together make up the universal church, the calling to faith in Christ of God's heritage takes place, Paul wrote here, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. You see, God is in control of all of the events surrounding the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. In God's execution of his great plan of salvation, nothing is left to what we call chance. Nothing is contingent upon the will of the creature because nothing is exempted from God's sovereign control. God works all things, not in an arbitrary way, but intelligently. He works all things to fulfill what he had determined to accomplish in his eternal counsel before the world was created. Now, brethren, this is why you have to get off the internet. Let me finish my sentence here. And get off your smartphone. I know we all love to text message one another. It's very helpful, very useful. Uh, I suppose I just said the same thing twice very helpful and useful. I understand the value of the smartphone and text messaging, but we need to turn off our smartphones, turn them upside down, take them away from us for a little bit. Turn off your laptop, your iPad, whatever. Make time in your busy lives. Your lives are busy. Make time to read the word of God, to think about what you're reading, and to apply it to your heart and your life. Because you can't think about these things when your mind and heart are distracted by the legitimate cares of this life, the legitimate work that needs to be done in this life, you cannot do it. You need to take time in quietness each day, whether that's in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon, whenever it is, take time. And I'm not saying it has to be an hour. If you can spend an hour, great. 
But even if you had 20 minutes of quietness, and as you're reading through the scriptures, ask questions of the scriptures, and ask God, how does this Bible passage apply to me, to my heart, to my life? Because when you begin to think about the sovereignty of God, fears evaporate. Fears of the unknown, fears of the future, fears of tomorrow. We have fears. Fears are not necessarily sinful. We can have sinful fears, but fears are not necessarily sinful. But when you think about the fact that God is in control of all things, the fears evaporate. The fretting, what is going to happen to the economy? What is going to happen to my 401k, if you have a 401k? What is going to happen to the real estate market? What is going to happen at my job? What about this new boss? He seems pretty obnoxious. He's very aggressive. What's going to happen to me in my position? What about my children? The world in which they are being raised. What is going to happen to them when I'm dead and gone? How will they be provided for? What about their souls? Are they going to become Christians by the grace of God? What else can I do to nurture that in them? The grace, the grace of God, the teaching of the word of God. You can be fretting about spiritual realities and fretting about temporal realities. We're not to fret at all. We're to pour our burdens, our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. And when you then stop and think, no, my God is in the heavens, but he is not a distant God who doesn't take notice of what's going on in my life, my personal life as a Christian. He is very involved in your individual life as a Christian. He's very concerned. He knows everything about your heart and your life and your needs and your cares and the future, of course. And he's in control of it all. There's no luck. There's no chance. And you can then pray to that living God who knows all, is all-powerful, and is in sovereign control of everything. You don't need to fear. You don't need to fret. And you can also rejoice. We have a hymn in our hymn book. I won't be able to quote it, but it refers to the end of Habakkuk where Habakkuk sees what God has revealed. There's coming judgment upon the people of God there in Israel. And Habakkuk is terrified by it all, rightly so. But then he writes, Though all the fields should wither, though flocks nor herds should not be there, I will still rejoice in God my Savior. And brethren... We don't know that God's judgment will come crashing upon America next week. God's judgment is indeed already here in the world and in America. Biblically speaking, I think we could say that. 
because men and women are being given up to their sins. But really, we shouldn't be so prophetic as we sometimes are. I am sure believers who lived under the rule of Bloody Mary in England thought that the end was near. I'm not sure, but I, I think many Puritans thought that. I'm not totally sure about that. But my point is, we don't know. And we need to take the posture of Habakkuk. Not fear, not fret, and rejoice in God our Savior, who is in absolute sovereign control of everything. Yes, we are told in the Bible that we are to be responsible Christians, human beings. We're not to pray, Lord, bring in the money so that we can buy the food and then sit home and do nothing. Of course not. You all know that. But we are to rejoice in our God. It's not always easily done. From my own experience, I know it's not always easily done, but we are to be guided not by our emotions, but by the word of God. One last passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. God, having of old time spoken unto the fathers in the days in the prophets by diverse portions and in diverse manners, has at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being the effulgence or the outshining of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And there we stop our reading. You see again the interweaving of the attributes of God and here we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly pays attention to and sovereignly cares for everyone and everything, upholding all things by the word of his power. Even when, as a baby, he was nursing at the breast of his earthly mother, Mary, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. How? We don't know how, but he was. It's an example of meditating upon something like that causes you to bow down in the dust before your gracious God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who continues from his throne in glory to uphold all things by the word of his power. He is in sovereign control of providence, of all things, so that his people and his churches are cared for, purified, and brought safely to glory.
You might fear at times. We talked about fears earlier. I bring it up again. Will I, will I make it safely? To glory. You may question that way at times. Because you see the reality of your remaining corruption in your heart. That breaks forth sometimes, sadly, from your lips. Your passions, sinful passions. And you get discouraged. But you see, you need to remember The sovereignty of God. No one shall pluck you as a believer in Jesus Christ out of God's hand. And nothing shall prevent you from entering glory. You need to think about God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, God's love, God's grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. His people, his churches are cared for, purified, and brought safely to glory. Certainly those are many, many good biblical reasons to be rejoicing in God, even this day. And God help us to that end. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are in sovereign control of everything and everyone. We thank you that you and your omniscience miss nothing, that you and your omnipotence are able to guide and direct. Indeed, that's what you do, providence. We thank you that we, your people, are in your hands. We thank you that the world in itself is also in your hands. Help us to not fear. Help us to not fret. Help us to rejoice in you, our God and Savior. We ask for these mercies with thanksgiving. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.